0: Welcome back to another uh, Powell View Christian Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. Uh, Once again, I am with you. My name is Trey Hinkle. I'm the lead pastor here at uh, Powell View Christian Church in beautiful Central Oregon. And uh, you are uh, joining us either for the first time or rejoining us. And we are uh, in Chapter 9 of the Gospel of Luke. We have been going through the Gospel of Luke and finding out some pretty exciting things. It's been a a great year so far, and uh, I mean, obviously, Luke packs a lot of stuff into this thing, and we're going to be in Luke for quite a while, uh, since we're only in chapter 9, and it continues on and on and on. Anyways, um, but before we begin, I I just wanted to share a story uh, of an experience I had when I was doing youth ministry down in Napa, California. I was doing uh, early teen ministry, and one Halloween morning. It was Saturday morning. Um, I got a phone call from one of our congregants, a guy named Dell, And Dell had actually served in the Korean War. He had flown planes. And he had his own little plane out in the uh, Napa airport, this little uh, airport right outside of town. And he called me up and said, Trey, what are you doing uh, this afternoon? And I said, well, uh, not much. I mean, tonight we're going to be taking out... Uh, my daughter for trick or treat, but uh, nothing. Today, it's Saturday, it's a day off. And he said, well, I need to take some aerial shots at the church. Uh, would you mind going up with me in the plane? And I said, no, that, that would be actually kind of cool. Up to this point, you know, I had flown commercial airlines all, all the time. Uh, I think I had been in a little plane maybe once in my life. A long time before this, but uh, so this was kind of an exciting prospect. I've never done it before, and it sounded sounded kind of fun. So he picked me up, and we kept asking me about things like, uh, uh, "Do you like roller coasters? Have you ever experienced zero g gravity? Things like that. And have you ever flown a plane? And you know, and I, of course, I love roller coasters. I I love uh, feeling like uh, I'm weightless. Um, no, I've never flown a plane before. Blah blah blah. Anyways, once we got to the airport, uh, we we got in, he began to show me all of the instrumentation panels. And I, you know, he had a, he had some controls. He had the steering wheel. Uh, I don't, I guess that's what you call it. And I had the steering wheel as well uh, there in the passenger seat. And we got up and we started circling the beautiful Napa Valley. And and then he said, uh, would you like to experience zero G? And I said, sure. So he took me up and then dropped and Uh, That was pretty cool. And then he said, would you like to take over? And I said, oh, whoa, um, okay. Scared to death, right? Scared to death. Um, And so I took over the controls and I made sure that I did everything that he told me to do. I had played video games in in my life. That's about as close as I'd ever come to flying a plane. And so I was very gentle and uh, very cautious, very measured in what I did. And he was very complimentary. I got my attaboys that day. He, he said, you know, it's, it's hard to believe that you've never flown one of these things. And you know, uh, I got down and I said, man, that can be a very expensive addiction. He goes, oh yeah, yeah, definitely a, a an expensive addiction. But I loved it. I loved it. Well, about, I don't know, four months later, he called me back up to say, hey, would you like to go back out again? I said, Sure now eager this time and and probably a little bit too big for my britches since I had done so well the first time, you know, being a rookie, never have done it before and getting some uh, compliments from this uh, Korean war vet uh, pilot. And so we tried it again. And this time I failed miserably. I mean, I was over correcting the plane. It was, you know, he had to take over for me many, many times. And uh, once we got grounded, I said, "Okay, that's it. I'm. I'm not. I don't need to fly ever again." I didn't get any of my Attaboy's that time. All right. So, what does this have to do with Luke? Well, a couple chapters back, actually, just one chapter back, in chapter eight, Jesus had sent out his disciples on their solo flight, if you will. Okay, and uh, they did a, a, an extremely incredible job. They came back, they were excited. Jesus was able to debrief things that, that were going on. They were very excited. Uh, and so then uh, they got to go out and uh, do some more things and they they should have gotten it, right? They, they should have got, I mean, they were successful that first time. They should have gotten it and they should have been able to totally run um, from that point on without any stumbling at all, right? Yeah, Right. How often does that ever happen? Occasionally, you you might get lucky and pick up something pretty good the first time you try it, and and then you say, well, that's easy, and then you get into another situation, and eh, you find out that uh, it's not that easy. Just like me on the plane, the disciples had a great time the first time soloing. It was exciting because they had success, but I think... Again, like me, I think they misunderstood how it was all supposed to work. See, today we get to an event where we're following the transfiguration of Jesus on the mountain, where uh, we looked at that last week, where he took Peter, James, and John with him, and, and the rest of the disciples were down at the foot of the mountain. And they got into the situation where it wasn't as exciting because it wasn't as easy. In fact, they got themselves into some, uh, a bit of trouble, uh, uh, almost a, a riot happening. They had stumbled. They had failed. They didn't get their attaboys either. In fact, Jesus has some pretty sharp words for them. But what made the difference between this event that happens after the Mount of Transfiguration and when Jesus had sent them out, uh, the the 12, out into the villages to uh, proclaim the kingdom of God? What made the difference? Why were they successful the first time and not this time? Um. Again, I I think that they probably had an inflated sense of what they themselves could accomplish. They had experienced power, but there's a problem at at times with power. The problem with power is when you don't realize where that power really comes from or where it has to come from if you are to accomplish what is expected of you. When you believe that the power comes from you, because of success that you had once and you thought, "Ah, I got this, that can lead to some problems. So we're going to start by reading the main passage. We're going to be looking at actually a lot of Luke chapter 9 today and and finishing up the chapter. But the main passage is verses 37 through 42. Uh, And uh, it goes like this. Uh, On the next day, Uh, When they had come down from the mountain, again, that's the mountain of transfiguration, a great crowd met Jesus, and behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son. He's my only child. And behold, a a spirit seizes him, and, and he suddenly cries out, and it convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And while he was coming, the demon threw the boy to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. I'm going to stop there. Now, let's break this down. Jesus had given the apostles power over demons. Exactly the same scenario. Jesus, back in chapter 8, had given them uh, authority uh, to, to to do exactly what they failed to do here in chapter 9. Oh, and by the way, um, as we looked at before, as we begin chapter 10, he's getting ready to send out 72 of his disciples to do the same thing, right? He, he's He's allowed them to do that. Then he goes up the mountain, with Peter, James, and John, the inner circle. And the others are down there at the foot of the mountain waiting. And I bet they're still pretty on top of the world. They're pretty excited about their trial run and the success that they had. And now I think that they overreach. They're they're confronted by a, a desperate guy with a desperate need. His son is possessed by a spirit that gives him epileptic fits. And it's very scary and it's very dangerous and the man wants them to do something about it. And I'm sure that they, would, they were absolutely thrilled with having a chance. Jesus isn't even around. Let's show him what we can do here. Let's do this. And they failed. Why? Why did they fail? Now, we have to look at a couple of other gospel accounts of this exact story to get a better idea as to why they were not able to do here what they had been able to do before um Matthew explains it like this in Matthew chapter 17. He says, then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, um, it's a little embarrassing Jesus, why couldn't we drive it out? And here's Jesus's response. He replied, because you have so little faith. You you know, some people get a little uh, weirded out that when the man is talking to Jesus and giving the uh, the situation outlining the situation for Jesus, that Jesus says, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Some people think that that's a very inappropriate uh, thing to say to this father who has asked Jesus for help. Well, what we read here in Matthew 17, I believe that this shows us who is Jesus talking to when he talks about, oh, faithless and twisted generation, faithless well, in Matthew 17, he says, you, didn't, you couldn't do this because you have so little faith. I think that that, oh, faithless and twisted generation, is actually uh, directed towards his disciples. I think there's a frustration that Jesus has here with his disciples, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about it. But they're approaching this with no faith. And then he goes on to explain there in Matthew 17 that if they had even the, the faith the size of a mustard seed, that they would be able to do so much. But they weren't able to do this because of their lack of faith. They had so little faith. Okay, that's what Matthew records. Now, if you look at the Gospel of Mark, who, who by by the way, Mark uh, most likely is telling things from Peter's perspective later on in, in life. Mark became kind of a a, um, a disciple of Peter, uh, uh, a student of Peter's, and so we we believe that Mark is really uh, the Gospel through Peter's eyes. Anyways. The, the way that Mark records Jesus' answer as to why they couldn't do it was a little different. Or maybe it's the same, just coming from a different angle. This is this is how Peter remembers it. Um, Mark 9, 29, Jesus replied, when they asked, why couldn't we drive it out? Jesus replied, well, this kind can come out only by prayer. Hmm. So you have a lack of faith and you didn't pray. It's very obvious to me when you put all three of these things together, Luke and Mark and Matthew, sounds like the disciples who did not have Jesus with them, did not have his command to go and do this. They thought that they could do this on their own. They were not relying on the authority of Jesus. They were not relying on the power of the Father. They didn't even think to connect with God the Father in prayer. Which to me, that's the classic sin of pride, right? You you thought you're all big stuff because you were able to do it before. Well, yeah, but the situation before was that Jesus sent you out. He gave you very specific instructions. This is what you were to do and gave them authority at that point. They were just assuming that because they were able to do it before, because they had had success before, that they could now on their own, without prayer, without any kind of authority or commissioning from Jesus, they thought that they could do this. Now, before we pronounce that accusation, is there anything else in the chapter that actually lends evidence to that conclusion? Because I believe that that's the conclusion, but it's not just From what I read here in those verses, I think that there's a lot more verses that we can read that show us that they are struggling here with pride. Let's go back to Luke 9 and and read the next verses from 46 through 48. I I jumped I jumped a little bit, but let's go to forty-six to forty-eight. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Hmm. Okay. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child put him by his side, and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. So here you got another argument. Who's going to be the greatest? I'm sure by Peter, James, and John getting to go on this incredible retreat with Jesus and seeing some things that the other ones didn't see, that that caused a little bit of a rift, you know? Um, they might have been looking down on the guys who didn't get to experience the transfiguration and seeing Moses and Elijah. Or, or maybe the guys that weren't able to go up there, they started to, to feel like they were second-class citizens. Um, maybe the Peter, James, and John were, were looking down saying, you know what, if we had been down there and the guy asked us to cast the demon out of his son, we wouldn't have made such a bonehead move, right? There's argument. Who's greater? Who's Well, I'm greater. Well, you're greater. Oh, no, I'm greater, right? And Jesus, knowing what's going on, I mean, knowing what's going on, uh, it puts them into shame. Uh, he knew what they were secretly thinking, and so he showed them what true greatness looks like. Receiving a child in his name. Okay receiving a child in his name well what would that mean well receiving a child in his name would be uh, to exalt a, a child and 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 put a child's needs ahead of themselves which means that they would be humbling themselves right humbling themselves even below a child and huh uh, what what true greatness looks like is what Jesus is showing them here that here's here's a child a servant no Cultural prestige, if you can even serve a child, you become great. So there's that, but but there's more. Uh, Now look at the next couple verses. John answered, "Uh, Master, we saw somebody casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, don't stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. So what are we dealing with here? Denominationalism. What are they, what, what are they doing? What's, what's that guy doing? He's not a part of our group, so we try to stop him. Uh, he doesn't do communion the right way. He doesn't worship on the right day. He doesn't interpret the end times the way that the books that we read interpret. You, you know what drives leadership of a church crazy more than anything? pettiness, pettiness, when people forget what the main thing is. And, and they, they start unnecessarily dividing up the room. You, you know, like when you were a kid and you were having an argument with your your sister in the car and you were in the back seat and, and you didn't want her to cross a an imaginary line, an arbitrary line that you just said, here's the line, don't cross this line. You know, people in church do that all the time. Not just in in, in individual churches, but in the church in general. We make all of these lines. This is my stuff. Don't, Don't touch my stuff. Don't cross this line. My stuff is better than your stuff. Dad, she's on my side of the back seat. Pettiness. Pettiness that doesn't get us any closer to the goal that the church has to reach the world with the gospel. See, you're involved in all that kind of stuff, and the kingdom isn't advancing. People's lives are not being changed. And and what we have at the end of the day is a wall, a wall that divides us rather than unites us. And as Jesus, Jesus tells us as much, he says, whoever's not against you, folks, is on the same team as you for crying out loud. We're all on the same team. I don't know why we have such infighting and and anger at each other sometimes in churches. We're all on the same team. And if we're not going to be on the same team, we can't accomplish what God wants us to do. Now, now, are you beginning to see some of the problems of power when, when somebody gets power to do something? And they think, well, this is the only way of doing it. Okay. But wait, there's more. Let's now look at verses 51 through 55. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, meaning for him to uh, die on the cross, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. I, I wish that I could do a whole sermon on he set his face to go to Jerusalem. What, what a powerful verse. Because that what that means is that Jesus made a decision that no matter what else will happen, he will accomplish what the Lord wanted him to accomplish. He was not divided. He was not of a a, a double heart or a double mind. Yes, in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he would ask Jesus uh, God to uh, let the cut pass from him. He says, "If there's any other way." But but we know that he would never have not done what the Father said because of this verse here. He set his face, knowing what was going to happen in Jerusalem. He set his face. That means he there was no turning back. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations. But the people there in the village of Samaria did not receive Jesus because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. I, By the way, I, I love the... Uh, the uh, series out there, The Chosen, two seasons so far. Uh, You can get it on Angel uh, TV, that Angel app. You can go online and grab it. It, It's it's an amazing story of Jesus and the disciples, the, the ministry of Jesus, told in such a fresh, unique, and realistic, and relevant way. I love how that series, The Chosen, depicts this particular scene. Here are James and John, the sons of thunder, they are, they are offended for Jesus. They're offended for Jesus, how he is being treated by those half-breed Samaritans. It's like, okay, so you say if they're not against us, they're for us. But what about these guys? They're against us. They really are against us. So that gives us the right to treat them differently, right? That gives us the right to take vengeance on them, right? That gives us the right to look down on them, Right. That we can ask for their destruction, right? And after Jesus rebukes them for... Listen, when you encounter opposition from lost people, you must remember that those people are lost. And you are to still care for the lost, right? So Jesus rebukes them. And after he rebukes them, uh, the the chosen um, has Jesus saying to them... After they'd learned their lesson, and they're they're now kind of, uh, yeah, we messed up. Jesus says, and and again, this is in the, the series The Chosen. He says, so you wanted to use the power of God to bring down fire to burn these people up? And then that's when John sheepishly admits, well, it sounds a lot worse when you put it that way. Do you see the pride? Do you see the pride against people that are of a different denomination? Pride against people that, um, that you have a prejudice against? A pride even amongst themselves to say, I'm better than you? Church, pride is the original sin. Pride is the original sin. It is the thing that the enemy tempts us with all the time. In fact, pride is the opposite of what it means to be used by God for the greatness of his kingdom. God will use the humble. He will lift the humble up. He will will put the humble in very significant places because they are are, um, pliable. They are willing to learn. They, They don't fight against it thinking, I've got a better way of doing things. The prideful are the ones that God cannot use. In fact, it says that he sets his face against the the proud. Pride will keep us operating in faith, where we are called to stay connected to the vine, the source of our power, right? Doing things only as the vine leads and the vine empowers. Now, there is something buried here between all of these failures that we just looked at. And it's a significant thing. We're going to go back to verses 43 through 45. I I jumped over them. But right after Jesus heals the boy, here's the point. Here's the point. But while they were all marveling. No, I'm sorry. Sorry. I'll even go back to 43. uh, Sorry. uh, And all were astonished at the majesty of God. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. Huh. The majesty of me? The majesty of the disciples? Look what the disciples were able to do. No, they were all astonished at the majesty of God for what God was able to do. But while they were all marveling at everything that he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of But they didn't understand the saying, and it was concealed from them, so they may not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask Jesus about this saying. The greatest, Jesus is saying this, folks, look, the greatest, the greatest of all is going to be laying down his life as a sacrifice. The greatest of all will not be praised by the people in charge. The greatest of all will actually become the servant of all. He's talking about himself. Everybody's astonished at the majesty of God. They're marveling at what he's doing. And he says, Listen, even me, the Son of Man, is about to die. I'm going to be delivered into the hands of men. I don't have to, I'm way more powerful than they are. I could stop it if I want to, but I will be delivered into the hands of a lesser created being. Why? Because I I am setting my face towards Jerusalem. I know what is needed, and I will not allow any of this pettiness to derail me. I am going to the cross. I will be delivered into the hands of men. Jesus said that no student is greater than his master. And if our master showed us ultimate humility, then what makes us think that we are not called to that kind of life as well? You know, Jesus said this all the time. He says, if you want to be great, you need to learn to be the servant. Uh, If you want to be great, you have to make yourself like a child. If you want to be great, you need to submit to the power of the true vine. In other words, if you want to be great, it's about... You learning to be obedient. It's not about you. It's not about what you can accomplish. It's not about your power. It's about what God's plan is and what God's power wants to do in and through you. So you don't rush off in front of God and try to do things without his authority or without his power. You don't try to take it upon yourself and say, this is is what I have accomplished. This is the church that I have built, right? So let me give you some very solid principles about what we just read. Number one, it's not about our position. It's about the price he paid. It's not about our position. It's about the price he paid. And though they really didn't get it there, Jesus, again, was showing them what he is going to have to do is to die. That was the father's plan. That's what he had set his face towards. It's about the price that he was going to pay, not about their position. Number two, it's not about our power, but it's about our privilege of actually serving other people. The disciples were not being childlike. They were being childish. The first thing that happens when people of the world come into power is they begin to try to figure out how they can keep that power. Because power is pretty intoxicating. It's it's pretty intoxicating. Jesus is saying, if you really want to be great, you'll give all of that up so that you can care for other people, serve other people. Number three, it's not about our preferences. It's about the priority of the gospel. It's so easy to slip into the, well, it's us for and no more attitude that Peter, James, and John might have had. It's not about having, you know, we've got the right way of doing things. And if you're not part of our club, then you're wrong. There will be people who follow Jesus, who trust him as their Lord and Savior, who will not do it our way. That doesn't mean that they are doing it the wrong way. Especially if God has led them to do it that way. And maybe the one that's wrong is not them. Lastly, it's not about our prejudices, but it's about the precious value, the precious value of the souls of people. Because even Samaritans are loved by God. Even the people on the other side of the political arena than you are loved by God. Even people of different faiths are loved by God. And Jesus died for their sins as well to give them an opportunity to come back to the Father. He still calls them. Now, whether they respond or not, that's on them, yes. But he still calls them into his family. Jesus didn't just die for people that look like you and think like you and vote like you. It's not about our prejudices. It's about seeing people the way God sees them as precious and valuable in his sight. It's all about what Jesus has done. Now, do you see how we keep going back to that main idea? If we can keep the sacrifice of Jesus, his work, his power, God's forgiveness, God's grace and mercy, if we can keep that in front of us, then we will be doing well in in preventing ourselves from falling into the temptation of pride. The the temptation of thinking that somehow it's because of us, uh, of our cleverness or our amazing abilities to put on a great show on Sundays so that people will be drawn in, or to keep us from falling to the temptation of relying on our own righteousness, our own goodness to make us right with God, or even the temptation to try to do great things for the kingdom when the king hasn't even given us those particular marching orders. Like not going to the Lord in prayer before setting out on a ministry or a mission, relying on your own power and wisdom and preferences. And then, and this has happened to me, I don't know how many times, countless times, and I don't like it, the the fact that I've had to do this. But you run on ahead of God, you try to do it on your own, and then you have to ask God to come in and bless your mess. Now, Jesus did bless the mess. He did make it right. But it was obvious that that was not, that the whole event did not happen the way that he would have wanted it to happen. And he was a little ticked off. Asking God to come in and bless your mess, that's kind of like just using him as your own personal maid because you made a mess of things, right? So how do we, how can we tell if in our life we are operating uh, on our power? Or on, on God's power, right? See, again, the problem that can accompany success, the problem that can accompany power is that it, it is way too easy to mistake the reflection of God's glory for our own glory, for our own uh, manufacturing of the glory, right? It, it's, it's the difference between the sun and the moon. Which one's brighter? Obviously, the sun is brighter, right? Sometimes the moon gets pretty bright, but it can never outshine the sun, right? The sun is bright, obviously, because it is a ball of fire. It radiates its own light energy, right? It's bright and it's magnificent. The source of the light is the sun, right? It manufactures its own radiation, the light, but not so the moon. Now, the moon should not ever claim to give off its own light. It's not the source of its own light. It has no light of its own it's just a big rock orbiting the earth but that but its importance and the way that we can see it at night is because it reflects the glory and the light and the radiation of the sun so how can you tell if you're falling into the same pride trap as the disciples here in chapter 9 simple are you reflecting god's glory or are you taking the glory on your own. See, all of these little short accounts here in chapter 9 illustrate a very powerful idea that actually runs counter to how the world operates. All power, all authority reside in Jesus, who through his death and resurrection was made King of kings and Lord of lords. And there is then a reality that we must adhere to. We must give ourselves then totally to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we lay aside everything, and I mean everything, all of our crowns that we might claim, the power that we can claim. We see in Revelation all of these people throwing their crowns down at the feet of Jesus because he is the one who is Lord of all. So then your life becomes about his plan and his timing and his agenda. Even your ministry and what you bring to the Lord is all about his plan, his timing, his agenda. It, it's then that we can accomplish what the church is supposed to accomplish. Now, the cost will be great. As we saw a couple of weeks ago when we studied the end of this chapter, when all of these people came to Jesus and said, I'll follow you. And Jesus says, the cost of following me is great. But church, so are the benefits. Eternal life, complete joy, knowing that you're never alone, having uh, this unconditional love shown to you, those are gifts that the world cannot give to us. They are only given by the Lord of the universe. And to him be the glory then forever and ever. Amen. All right. Well, that's the uh, encouragement from the word of the Lord today, Luke chapter 9. Uh, glad to have you with us again uh, if you're ever in the Central Oregon area. We are located in a little farming community be- or ranching community between Redmond, Oregon, and Prineville, Oregon. And I uh, would love to have you swing by um, one of our weekend services. Um, otherwise, you can also email me uh, at uh, Trey, T R E Y, dot PBCC at gmail and just let me know that you. Uh, I've been listening to our podcast. You can go onto our website, palbutchurch.com, and also let us know that you've been listening to the podcast. And uh, that just encourages us to know that the message is going out even beyond our walls. And There is no pride in that. There's just a, a, a humble privilege, sense of privilege of, wow, God, thank you for using us in whatever way you want to use us. I want to thank uh, those who do uh, serve, uh, our church and, and this podcast, uh, Steve Pittman for keeping all of our technological stuff updated. And of course, for Lisa Welly, the, the gal who even thought of this podcast, she's our executive producer. She makes sure that a description gets up uh, every week and, and this podcast gets up every week. I want to thank her and I want to thank you. And uh, of course, we want to thank God because without him, nothing would be possible. We'll talk with you next time.